So if culture really is working to deceive, if Satan really is working to deceive and sow confusion, which by the way he is, this is how the Bible describes him, Satan is given a specific name in the Bible and it is called the father of lies. Right? We say it sometimes flippantly that the devil is a liar. He is not just a liar, he is the liar. And when it calls him the father of lies, what that means is the fruit of the devil, what he breeds and reproduces is lies. It's what he does. So he sows confusion and he's the father of lies. And so if in culture we see these confusions and these deceptions woven around the issues of sexuality, the question becomes, How do we weave through that? And what we've landed on over the last few weeks is we have to listen to the right voice. We have to listen to the voice that designed sex and designed gender and designed marriage and gave us our identities. We have to listen to the right voice. But in order to listen to the right voice, we have to stop listening to everything that is not his voice. So that we have to stop listening to culture and letting culture tell us how we should view sexuality and gender. We have to stop listening to well-meaning friends who aren't walking in obedience to Jesus as they try to tell us what should we, we should be open to tolerating. We have to stop listening to politicians. Politicians don't form our theology. Theology, theology should form our politics, right? So we have to stop listening to that. And I want to tell you one other place we got to stop listening. We have to stop listening at times even to the voice inside ourselves telling us how we feel. Because I feel this, then I I behave this way or act this way. We have to listen to the voice of the designer. So what do we turn to hear his voice? We turn to the word that he spoke to us. Turn to the Bible. Um, At New Beginnings, we believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. Truth is not a thing that you can take and say, for me it's one thing, for you it's a different thing, and we all get to have our own approach and our own We believe in absolute truth, and we believe that absolute truth comes from the Bible, which is why every week we say the Bible is, it's true. The Bible is true. And because we believe that the Bible is true, we believe that it is not an antiquated book. We believe that it is not a good book with good suggestions. We believe that it is the book of truth, the living word of God, completely applicable, perfect in its application, perfect and inerrant in every way. And in the way that we receive this word, it profits us to correct our lives, to train us in righteousness, to reprove us. That means to point out the things that don't please God and then correct our path so that we are walking in a way that does please God and to make us righteous. So this is why we turn to the Bible. Now, I want to tell you a couple of things as we get ready to step into this message dealing with the issue of, of homosexuality. The first thing that I want to tell you is I recognize um, that this is a very tender subject. It's a very tender subject. Um, meaning, whether it is a personal battle, whether same-sex attraction is a personal battle for you, whether it is a a battle for someone you know, someone in your family, someone you love very dearly. This is a very tender subject. And there are very, very strong feelings of identity and confusion, strong feelings of isolation, of feeling like they're alone, feelings of, of shame. This is just a tender subject. And so we want to approach it with care. And we want to approach it with all of the grace that Jesus gives to sinners in need like me. I want to give the grace that I need from Jesus when he deals with sin in my life. That's the grace, right? So first of all, I just want to acknowledge it's a a tender subject. Here's the second thing. And this is something, church, that we have to own. And it is that the church has not always handled this the best way. There have been things said and done under the banner of the name of Jesus that are so unchristlike it is to our shame. There have been things said and done under the banner of the name of Jesus that have brought harm 
whether intentional or not. Um, but it is a reality. And so I want to tell you, um, we don't apologize for holding up the standard of God's Word. We don't apologize for that, nor do we soft sell it, right? We don't hide the details. We say, here's, here's what God says. Here's what God expects. Um, but we do recognize there is a deep sense of confusion around the issue of homosexuality, same-sex attraction. And so we approach it with empathy and with love and with grace. And that's what we want to do today. And so I want to start this morning by speaking directly into something that the devil himself has woven, and that is this. I want you to hear me say this. The LGBTQ community, lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, queer community, hear me say this. They are not our enemy. And we are not their enemy. But the devil is a liar. And he is crafty. And what he has managed to do is to drive a wedge between people who deal with these issues and the very place God has designed and set aside for them to find hope and healing and help. And so what he's done is he's driven a wedge right down in between us so that the church looks at this community and says, they're the enemy, and they look at us and go, you're the enemy. And what's happened is, in the eyes of the LGBTQ community, the church and Christians have become little more than a cartoon of hate-filled, sign-carrying people yelling things like, gays burn in hell. And that is as far from the heart of the gospel as anything I can imagine. That is as far from the character of Jesus as anything I can imagine. And that is not real Christianity. How do I know that? Because Jesus himself, when he wanted to demonstrate real Christianity, do you know who he spent most of his time with? Prostitutes. Tax collectors. People who had committed their lives to robbing their own brothers and sisters to uh, enrich themselves. Liars, cheats, swindlers. He went, that's who I came for. <laughs> now, why did he demonstrate Christianity in that way for us? Because it is hard to hate somebody you're willing to sit down and look in the eye and see them as a human. It is hard to lay your prejudice on someone that you're willing to sit down and look them in the eye and love them as an image bearer of the God who gave you his image. I knew it was going to be a little quiet in here. Y'all are going to hear it. I'm telling you, I'm going, we're going to talk about it. All right? The heart of Jesus is not hatred or anger or spirit. Fight and rage and division. You want to hear the heart of Jesus? The heart of Jesus is come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come and take my yoke of love upon you. It's light. And when you do, I'll take your burden off of you and you're going to find rest for your soul. There's the heart of Jesus. When he described himself, he said, here's how I want you to see me. Meek and lowly. That's the heart. Ephesians 6, Paul says this, and then we're going to jump in. Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Oh, the enemy will tell us that lie, won't he? He loves that lie. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Then who do we wrestle with in the fight for righteousness, in the fight to hold up the standard of God's word, in the fight uh, to see the heart of the gospel and the love in the heart of the gospel and the love of Christ be spread all over the world and meet people where they are no matter what they struggle with? Who are we fighting against in that? We're fighting against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So church, let's remember who the real enemy is. Amen? So, I know that was a fun place to start. Now, let's get in. So, uh, here's where we've been the last few weeks. We established some truths last week that are going to be important for us to hold on to. They're going to be like the diving board 
for this week. So I want to put them on the board in case you, on the, on the board, <laughs> on the screen in case you missed them uh, last week. Here's where we landed as we looked at Genesis 2 and God's design for marriage and for sex. Sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. So what we landed on is God created marriage and God created sex. These are his ideas. They're his designs, which means then sex according to his design is for marriage. So within the, um, the construct of marriage that he created, he gave sex as a gift to that to bless it. And he said, it is only for this. Sex by his design is for marriage. Therefore, that led us to understand sex outside of God's design, no matter how it expresses itself in any way, is sin. Sex outside of God's design for marriage is sin. So that's where we start, that sex is reserved in, for the one man, one woman, becoming one flesh for a lifetime covenant. That, that's where God has set it as where it belongs. And so holding on to that, we want to see what does the Bible have to say about homosexuality. There are a couple of things that we're going to grab a hold of today. And the first one comes from these three things. It's very simply stated, but it's where we start, and it's this. Homosexuality is a sin because it is contrary to God's design. So I just want to start there. Homosexuality is a sin. Why? Because it is co contrary to God's design. If God's design for sex is one man and one woman, one flesh, one covenant, one lifetime, then the practice of homosexuality is a sin simply because it is a deviation from that design. It's a deviation from that design, and this is consistent throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. This is consistent. Now, what I want to tell you is it would take a week's worth of sermons. It would take six or seven weeks to go through dealing with every instance in the Bible where we see homosexuality dealt with or mentioned. And it is impossible to go to each one of those and unpack them and teach them fully. And we can't do that. But here's what we can clearly see. What we can clearly see. And then I'm going to challenge you to read these things on your own as well. What we can clearly see in the Old Testament are moments where homosexuality is called out as sin. And there is not a single moment where it is called anything other than sin. So there are clearly moments where it is called sinful behavior. And there's not a single moment in all of God's word where it is called anything other than that. So a few instances to just hold in your mind if you want to write these down. One of them is Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, you'll be, if you remember what's happening in that moment, this is when God destroys the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, homosexuality was not the only reason God destroyed that city, by the way. We often think it is. It wasn't, right? It was a primary reason, but you can read in um, Ezekiel, you can read even in Hebrews, there were other sins happening in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that were a part of why God destroyed it. But homosexuality was one of those sins, and you see it called out as sin. You can go to Leviticus chapter 18 and 19. In these chapters, what you see is God is laying out what is sexual sin. He's, he's just listing it out, right? What is, what is out of bounds, what is outside of his design. He calls out things like incest. He calls out uh, heterosexual adultery, calls it out. He calls out homosexuality. He calls out bestiality. And God calls all of them sin because they are all deviations away from his design. Now, here's what I find interesting. When you read Leviticus 18 and 19, when you see the judgment and the penalty for the sin of homosexuality, guess what? It is the exact same judgment and penalty for every other sexual sin. It's the exact same. The penalty for sexual sin, for any deviation away from God's design in God's economy, is always the same. Now, why point that out? Because one of the mishandlings that we've had in the church is we've had a tendency to focus on same-sex attraction and turn a blind eye to every other sexual perversion. 
And it's what's discounted our credibility to speak the truth of God in love is because they're looking and going, you're unwilling to deal with adulterous pastors and ministers who are cheating on their wives. And so they see that. And they go, you don't get to speak into this if you're not willing to deal with that. And that's one of the ways we've mishandled this. Is we've highlighted one thing and ignored others. I just want you to see, when God lays out the penalty and the punishment, for, it is the same whether it is incest, whether it is adultery, homosexuality. It's the same penalty. Same punishment. So God doesn't call homosexuality out above others. He calls it out along with all the others. That's what I want you to take away from that. Now we go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, what we see is this this Old Testament standard affirmed. We see the homosexual lifestyle affirmed as sin. So I'm going to put some verses on the screen. These are verses that you can just go back and read for yourself. And before the end, we'll, we'll deal with some of these. Um, but these are, so if you just want to take a picture of that, you can. These are verses that are um, affirmations of what the Old Testament teaches. So they, they affirm that. And the argument from culture, one of the arguments that has surfaced from culture has not been so much to say that the Old Testament doesn't talk about this or that even uh, parts of the New Testament doesn't talk about this. The big argument, the big debate has been to say that Jesus was silent on the issue of homosexuality. So culture will say, okay, we see it in the Old Testament, but that's antiquated and we see Paul said some stuff about it, but Christianity is about Jesus and about what Jesus did. And Jesus didn't say anything about it. Jesus was silent, and because he was silent, he must have been okay with it. And if Jesus is okay with it, the church should be okay with it too. That's the line of reasoning. That's the line of reasoning. But there are all kinds of problems with that line of reasoning. I want to give you a few. The first one is this. The argument that Jesus was silent is an extremely weak argument. Why? Because I can give you a laundry list of deplorable behavior that Jesus didn't call out by name, and yet none of us would affirm he stood in favor of it. Jesus never spoke about pedophilia. He never spoke about rape. He never spoke about spousal abuse. He never spoke about human trafficking. And yet none of us, not one person in this room would say, Jesus was for those. He never said anything about it. must be okay. Not one clear-thinking human would say that. All right, so the argument of silence is a weak argument. Here's the next one. This is much more important. You cannot separate the red letters from the black letters in the Bible. Can't separate the red letters, what Jesus said, from the black letters. What do I mean by that? John chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? It says, in the beginning was the Word, talking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is called the Word of God. You go a few verses later to John 1, 14, and it says, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which means what? It means that Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. All of it. Old Testament, New Testament. He's the embodiment of it, which means Jesus being the Word of God, being the, the Word that has become flesh. You cannot separate things that have been said in the Word of God from the one the Bible calls the Word of God. can't separate it, right? Which means... What the Bible says in Genesis 2 about sex and marriage, what it says in Genesis 18, what it says in Leviticus 18 and 19, Jesus is not only affirming those, he's the embodiment of them. You cannot separate the words of Moses from the words of Jesus, the words of Paul from the words of Jesus, the words from, from Jude in chapter 1 verse 7 where he deals with this. You cannot separate their words from Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the word they spoke. He is the word. So, the argument of silence is really a very, very weak argument. You cannot separate the red letters from the black letters. And here's, here's probably the most reasonable practical, which is this. 
Jesus affirmed the Old Testament standard of God's design for sex. He affirmed it. He affirmed it, right? Which Jesus, if Jesus affirmed God's design, which he did, I'll show you, it means that he has affirmed homosexuality, which is a deviation from that design, as a sin. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus is answering a question and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus goes back and says, this is what gender is. So he's literally just quoting Genesis chapter 2. Why? Because he is the embodiment of Genesis chapter 2. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That is marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. That is sex. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. So Jesus affirms one man, one woman, united by covenant for a lifetime is God's design. And in upholding that standard, he affirms that anything outside of that is sin. One other place I want you to, to see is Mark chapter 7. And it, we're, when we're dealing with issues and, and topics like this, there's, we're just going to be at lots of different places in the Bible. So if you want to write these down as we go, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 20, Jesus is teaching what it is that actually defiles a person. What he's really teaching is where is sin born in us? Here's what he says. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the what? The heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is saying all of the outward sin that you see is born in the heart. So New Beginnings, I want you to hear me say this. You probably heard me say this before. The seed of every sin lives in every human heart. Oh, it may not bear fruit in your life the way it may bear fruit in someone else's life, but the seed of every sin is in every human heart. And Jesus points this out, and I read this verse because that word that he uses for, where he says sexual immorality, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, that's two words, but it comes from one Greek word, and that Greek word is the word porneia. Now, that word porneia obviously is where we would get our English word for what? For pornography, right? For porneia. And it was a bit of a catch-all word to, reply to, any, to apply to any kind of sexual immorality. It was, it was kind of like a junk word, and by junk word, I don't mean uh, it didn't have value. I mean it was like the junk drawer at your house in your kitchen, right? How many of you have a junk drawer, right? How many of you, when you move into your house, you committed, we are not having a junk drawer in this house, right? But now you have a drawer, and all that's in it is like soy sauce and ketchup packets and caps to pins that you've already thrown away and batteries that don't work and all sorts of just... Right? The dog's leash is in there. Your tax return from 2001 is in there. You have no idea what's in this drawer, right? It's a catch-all. And in that way, porneia is a catch-all word describing any kind of sex outside of God's design, which includes homosexuality. Okay, so we've established this. It's a, it's a sin because it's contrary to God's design. The question is this. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? How do we deal with the reality that people struggle with this attraction? How do you deal with it if you struggle with it? How do you come alongside family and friends that you love who need help and hope? These are questions we need to answer. and We need to answer the, the larger question that culture and the church are asking, which is, can you be gay and Christian? Right? That's, that's the one. And to get to the answer, there are two places we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. So when we look at Romans 1, Paul is teaching us how God responds to all ungodliness, right? To the practice of any sinful behavior. This is what he's teaching in Romans 1. 
And the letters to Romans and the letters to the church in Corinth are particularly helpful because of the issues they were dealing with. So within these cities of Rome and Corinth, here's what you had. You had a lot of idol worship. And a lot of worship to idols involved a lot of sexual deviance as a part of the worship. So there would be same-sex things going on as a part of worship to false gods. There would be orgies that were going on as a part of worship to false gods. And what was beginning to happen was those cultural influences were beginning to make their way into the church. And so both in Romans and in the letters to the church at Corinth, Paul has to deal with these things. He has to deal with these things. And so he's walking us through how God responds to all ungodliness and unrighteousness and these things that were working their way into the church. So he says this in Romans 1, verse 24. He talks about, and he's talking about people who have heard the truth of God and done whatever they wanted to do anyway. Here's what he says. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is one of the deceptions of culture. Culture says that you should worship yourself. Even if you worship God, that can't come before worshiping what you feel and what you want. Therefore, God passes through the filter of what you feel rather than what you feel passing through the filter of God. Right? Culture says we should worship ourselves. We should worship us. And God says this in verse 26. He says, so for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. What does he mean by that? He explains it in the next verse. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what I would say is the Bible, it'd be hard for the Bible to be any more clear about about the lifestyle and the practice of homosexuality. So here this is obviously what Paul is talking about. However, what you see throughout the letter in Romans and the letters to the church in Corinth is Paul also deals with other sexual sin. In one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he calls out a guy who is sleeping with his father's new wife, not his mother. He's sleeping... His father's married a new woman, and this guy starts sleeping with his new stepmother. And Paul goes, you got to put that dude outside of the church. He's inviting sinful behavior into the church that grieves the heart of God. But Paul says, we don't kick him out for the sake of kicking him out. We set him outside in order to bring him through a process of restoration. I want you to hear me this morning, church. Sin is never called out for the sake of shame or rejection. Sin is called sin in order to begin the process of restoration. And if your heart is not to see someone restored to joy and health and holiness in Jesus, then you probably don't have anything to say on the issue. Because the heart of the gospel is not to call sin for sin's sake. It's to identify it, to bring them back to restoration. So when Paul says, you have to set this brother outside, he then lays out a process and says, but you don't leave him alone. You go walk with him. You restore him. You see him brought back into fellowship. So again, Paul is not highlighting homosexuality above other sexual sin. And here's how he ends this little section in Romans where he talks about the unnatural relationships and God giving them over, he says this, verse 32, this ends that chapter. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now what I'm about to say and where we'll spend the rest of our time is incredibly important in our understanding of what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. The first thing I want to tell you is this. There is a difference between attraction and action. There is a difference 
between attraction and action. What do I mean by that? Look again at that verse in Romans 1.32. Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who say this word practice such things, they not only do them but give approval to those who what? Who practice them. That word practice is incredibly important. It's the Greek word praso, P-R-A-S-S-O. I'm sure I've mispronounced that. But it's that Greek word, and here's what it means. It means to perform repeatedly, to perform habitually. It's a word that implies a commitment to a behavior. Practice is action. It's repetitive. It's conduct. It's an ongoing behavior in your life. Paul points out the action, the practice, because there is a difference between attraction and action. And so I want you to hear me, and we all have to take this into our hearts Hear me, it isn't the attraction to someone of the same sex that is sin. Any more than, uh, if, because if that's true, then what else is true is that any person that has experienced even a splinter of an attraction to someone they are not married to is hopeless. I knew this would be the quietest moment of the whole day right there. I knew where it was going to happen. I felt it. Same-sex attraction. And when I say attraction, hear me say temptation. Same-sex desires. Being tempted to sin is not sin. Otherwise, we got a real problem on our hands. In the same way that you can experience an attraction to someone you are not married to, or maybe a sexual attraction to someone you've yet to marry in a dating relationship or a betrothed relationship, in the same way that you can feel a sexual attraction, temptation, a, a drawing toward them, and still be a Christian, even though God has said, that is not within my design, in that same way, someone can experience an attraction to the same sex and still be a Christian. They can be tempted. How do I know that? Because Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, with the ways that we struggle, the, the attractions we deal with, the temptations we deal with. We have one who in every respect has been, say it, tempted dealt with things as we are yet without sin. Jesus was tempted. Jesus experienced attractions. But listen, he was without sin. Why? Because it is acting on the attraction that is sin. How do we act on the attraction? Through the lingering lust in our minds, through the physical engagement of our bodies. That's when it crosses the threshold into sin. That's what severs the intimacy with God. Regardless if it's heterosexual or homosexual. So can someone deal and battle same-sex temptation and still be a Christian? Yes. In the same way that someone can battle heterosexual lust and still be a Christian. The reason we don't like that is because we like to elevate the sins we don't struggle with. I said, whew, y'all about to get me, so I got to quit. Because we might battle the temptation, we might deal with the attraction, but as we battle the temptation, the question becomes, is our desire to please Jesus? Is our desire to walk in holiness with God is our desire to live righteously even in our battle with this temptation. Because if you battle any temptation, but in that attraction towards sin, no matter what it is, if your desire is to please God and obey God and walk with Jesus, that very desire is an evidence of God's work in your life. 
that you desire it all to please Jesus in the middle of your sin is an evidence that God is at work in you. Otherwise, we're hopeless and we're in here for no reason. Right? Now, can someone be a Christian who says, I don't care what the scripture says. I don't care what God has made clear in his word. I'm going to indulge in this lifestyle and do what I want? No. No. But neither can someone who is heterosexual who says the same things. I know it's heavy, but I need you to let God's word speak. And it is so hard when we have to fight through all the layers we have placed between us and another. It's so hard to fight through. But there is a difference between attraction and action. Jesus was tempted, yet was without sin. Why? Because it never crossed the threshold of action. Okay. Here's the next point I want you to hear. And it's that we are not defined by our desires. We are not defined by our desires. Now, this is one of the most glorious, beautiful truths in all of Christianity, and it is also one of the greatest deceptions culture twists around struggles with gender and sexuality. Because culture wants to tell you, you are what you desire. What you desire, what you're drawn to is not a thing you deal with, it's who you are. That's the lie culture tells. Right? That what you desire, what you feel attracted to, is who you are. This is why the debate around issues of gender and sexuality are so difficult and contentious and aggressive because they're so personal, right? This is why there is this enormous push for people to have their own pronouns and their own labels because they've taken a desire and they've said, that's not a thing I struggle with, that's who I am, so that when you even approach that and give a gentle gospel loving correction and just call sin, sin, they can't receive it as loving correction. It's an assault on who they are because they've taken a desire and laid it on themselves as an identity. They've said, I desire this. I feel attracted to this. Therefore, this is who I am. Is there anyone in this room with me who is thankful to God we are not defined by our desires? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the definition of who I am is not defined by my sinful desires. Listen to what God's Word says in 1 Corinthians 6. So this is the letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says this in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are the unrighteous? He's about to tell us. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, porneia, any kind of sexual uh, activity outside of God's design. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is saying if you live this kind of life, if you affirm this kind of conduct, if you practice these things and celebrate these things, you cannot expect to inherit God's kingdom. You cannot affirm, you, cannot, you will not inherit God's kingdom, and you cannot expect to live with the blessing of God on your life. And that doesn't just apply to homosexuality. It implies to anyone who deals with the porneia. It implies to anyone who has made an idol out of something that they placed above God, which is every man, woman, and child in this room. It applies to anyone who's dealt with adultery, anyone who's taken even the smallest thing that didn't belong to them and nobody even knew you took it. Jesus said that's thieving. It implies to someone who for a moment had a lack of generosity and was greedy. Someone who indulges with drink or drugs. Someone who has cheated someone else. Do you see the list here? That's a net and we're all caught in it. 
Paul is saying, to live in affirmation of these things, you will not inherit the kingdom. But the next verse he says, it's the most beautiful thing you're going to hear today. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul said, yes, you did these things. Yes, you, you, you used to live this way, giving in to these desires, allowing them to define you. But that is who you were, it is not who you are. Your sexuality is not your identity. Your sin struggle is not your identity. If you are in Christ, you have a new identity in Christ. The Bible says you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. How is that possible? Because Jesus has washed you. Jesus has sanctified you, meaning he has put you in the 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 kiln of being purified and making you more like him. Jesus has justified you. What does that mean? He's taken on himself the punishment for every wicked desire you've ever had. And he laid it on him so that he could pay the price of justice. And then he presents you before the throne of God, faultless and without blame. He has washed you, cleansed you, purified you, sanctified you, justified you in his own name and by the power of his Holy Spirit, you are made new. And you are not defined by your desires. None of us are. If you battle same-sex attraction or you have a relative or friend, someone you love that does, hear me. It is, it is in turning our ear away from every voice that is not the designer that is the first step to freedom. All right. Here's the last thing. There's a difference between attraction and action. We're not defined by our desires. And in Jesus, we find grace to sustain us and power to strengthen us. In Jesus... We find grace to sustain us and power to strengthen us. I want you to see 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, Paul's writing another letter to the same church that battles these issues. And Paul is talking about how God has given him powerful revelations and powerful gifts. But he's also given him something called a thorn in the flesh. I want you to read, hear what Paul says about it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So, so notice this. Paul has some sort of issue. Some sort of, it might, we don't know what it is. It could be a sin struggle. It could be a physical ailment. We don't, we don't know. It's some kind of unique burden. And Paul says, multiple times, I begged God to take it away. That I don't want to have this thorn. I don't want to have this struggle. I don't want to deal with this burden. Whatever it is anymore, I don't want it in my life. Paul begged God to take it away. And look at what God said in response. But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Matt, I know there are desires you want me to take away, but my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I boast all the more, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I stop hiding that I struggle. I stop hiding the reality that I deal with sinful attractions that don't please the Lord, so that by the power of Christ, it may so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, 
Jesus gets involved, and then I am strong. I want you to hear me. We may never have our sinful desires taken away from us this side of eternity. Some of you in this room know that there are sin issues in your life and you have pleaded with the Lord to simply take the desire away from you so that you don't even want it anymore. Whether it was the taste of alcohol, the desire to get high, the desire to overuse a prescription medication, the desire to, that, of a sexual attraction or to see something. or You have begged God to take away the desire that you have for some sort of sin. And every day you still have to wake up and go to war with it. And there will be sinful desires we will never be rid of this side of heaven. But you can know this if you are in Christ. The day is coming when they will be eradicated forever. The day is coming when they will be eradicated forever. And until that day, until that day, we trust the grace of Jesus. We lean on the strength of Jesus, not our own strength, not our own wisdom, not somebody else's voice. We trust His grace. And as we wait for that day, we have to let there be this ever-increasing desire for holiness to be created in us by the Holy Spirit. Because the more we walk surrendered to Him, yielding to His desire for our lives, the more our desire for holiness becomes stronger, the more our design, desire for sin becomes less. So many of us have no victory over sin because we have no real desire to live holy. And the best we're doing is in our own effort trying to make the best choices we can. Your battle with sin is a supernatural battle. Paul says, therefore, you need supernatural strength. You need supernatural grace. Paul said, God, I've tried. I can't quit. And I've asked you three times. And the answer has been no. And God said, that's right. Here's why. Because I want you to know how sufficient my grace is, even in the middle of your struggle. And I want you to know how powerful my strength is when I give it to you, even in the middle of your struggle. I've had brothers and sisters in Christ who deal with same-sex attraction and they've asked the question, if I come to Jesus, is he going to take this desire away? He may, he may not. There are alcoholics who wake up every day and wish they didn't want to overdrink, But they love Jesus and they're trusting him. They're going to war with that. He may or he may not. What I can tell you is, is that even if he doesn't take those desires away, he can give you new desires. He will give you new desires. Desires for holiness. Desires to please him. And the more I walk in those desires, the weaker and weaker the desires that do not please him become in my life. And that's what it means for his power to be made perfect in us. I see what time it is, and I know you're ready to go. You're like, my gosh, this has been a lot of talk about this. So I want to I give you one practical thing. And this is for every soul in the room, man, woman, teenager. How are we strengthened in our battle with sin? We have to let every temptation be the trigger to pray. Every temptation, every sinful thought, every unholy attraction or desire that, that, the, that Satan puts in front of us, that is the trigger to pray. And you go, my gosh, Matt, that means I gotta, it's good, it happens every five minutes. That means you're praying every four minutes every four minutes. God, this image was on my phone. This image, help me. The devil wants me to just lock in on that. 
and linger in it. God, I got friends telling me I can live however I want and that's the only way for me to be happy. Your word says different. That's a lie. Give me grace. Give me strength. Help me. Every temptation to sin becomes a trigger to pray. A trigger to pray. And not that kind of weak prayer that says, God, I could use a little help. I'm talking about that pleading that says, God, if you don't move, I'm hopeless. I need you. Help me. Help me. Help me. Okay. So this morning, my question to all of us is this. Do you want more freedom in every area of your life? And I remember we said on the front, this is for all of us. Every area of your life. Whether it's dealing with sex or pornography or drugs or alcohol or gluttony or lying or taking or stealing or exaggerating or pride or anger. Do you want more freedom in every area of your life? Freedom is tucked in right behind surrender. That's where it is. Right behind your willingness and ability to surrender is freedom. I know it sounds the opposite. No, isn't freedom meaning working my way out of it? Nope. Freedom is surrender. And it may be that you need to surrender your life to Jesus for the very first time. And if that's you, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dismiss. And when we do, I want you to come to the front. I'll be here. Carrie will be here. Pastor Ben will be here. If you just need to talk to somebody about this, okay? Here's the other thing. If you deal with this issue, I want you to know I have prayed that God would entrust us with people who battle same-sex attraction so that we would become a place that is known for holding hands and walking with, not stiff-arming and kicking away. So I've asked God, would you entrust us with people you want to bring to deliverance and freedom? So if you struggle with this issue, I want you to know right here, there's help, practical help. There's hope in Jesus. And we will walk with you the way we need somebody to walk with us in our sin. Father, I love you. I'm so thankful for your word. I pray, God, that as we go, um, we would go with our hearts full of your grace and of your strength with a renewed desire for holiness in our life and a renewed compassion for people in the world. Help us in Jesus' name.